Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest today is radio and TV host, entrepreneur, progressive political commentator, and prolific author, Tom Hartman. And now, your Sexy Boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. And I'm Phil Proctor. And today... We have a, a, a fascinating man who makes his living talking and will be talking with us about living. Uh, he's the number one progressive talk show host in America. He's the one and many Tom. He's got a big Hartman tag. You're it. Hi, Tom. Yeah, I know. You're, you're not used <laughs> to talking to real people, are you? Unless we call on the phone. Hey. Tom, why do you keep picking on the president? You know, he's not a bad guy. Played golf with him once, and he actually let me win. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hi, Phil. Hi, Ted. Man, I tell you, I don't know how you do it, Tom. You talk occasionally about some of the other progressive talk show hosts. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you featured a fellow, was his last name Thompson? No. Joe well, Madison. Uh, yeah, Joe Madison, yeah. and and various other. But how many of you are there? How many of us are out there these days? Probably fifteen or twenty, uh, if you include wow. the people who have a pretty good following on on uh, you know non traditional platforms like YouTube or or uh, you know podcasts that are really right. burning up the pavement, you know, on Spotify and Apple and things. Um, there's there's uh, six or seven of us who are you know, on like Sirius XM or on major radio stations around the country. And Free Speech TV carries a lineup of people. We talked with Harry Shearer that there was a turning point yeah. where right-wing radio replaced a lot of progressive FM and progressive thoughts. That's right. And that it's, it's far more marketable. Well, I don't, I don't think that that's an accurate characterization. Um, you know, when Air America started we were on 57 clear channel stations. We were only leasing two, New York and Los Angeles. All the rest of them picked us up because we got them ratings, good ratings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when Bain Capital, Romney's company, bought uh, clear channel because we were on clear channel stations, um, they started taking us off. And uh, we got down to like three or four. I'm on, I think, two right now. Maybe, maybe just one, maybe just San Francisco. I'm not sure if the Albuquerque station is still up. And then um, uh, Cumulus the old, bought out the old CBS stations, and they ended up with the seven eight hundred stations. Um, and uh, the one of the senior executives at Cumulus, one of the two owners, one of the billionaire owners, um, visited with me and a United States senator in his office. And uh, the senator said, "Well, now you own all these, you know, basically a radio station in every major market in the United States." And, uh, and he also bought Westwood One, which was the network that was syndicating all the progressive programming. Huge. And so this, this senator said, and you own the, the network that syndicates them. So uh, how many stations are you going to put progressive programming on? And this guy said, none. And the senator said, why? And, and this guy said, because I will not have programming on my stations that, uh, of people who want to raise my taxes. Mm. Um, couple of years before that, I had uh, Talkers Magazine does an annual convention for people in the talk radio business, typically draws 100 or so people, and they're all hosts, and 95 of them are right-wingers. But but uh, I was, uh, but it's still, it's an interesting uh, event. 
and I like it. I like going to it. And I was uh, at their luncheon, and I was just by coincidence sitting next to the vice president of programming, as I recall, for Salem Radio, which again owns radio stations in all the major markets, and you know uh, carries Hugh Hewitt, Dennis Prager, all those guys. And I said, uh, you know, you've got nothing but conservative programming on. Um, why don't you put a progressive on? You know, me or there's some other good shows too. And he said, oh, we'd never put a progressive on. And I said, why? And he said, well, you know, uh, our company uh, built, you know, started out as a Bible publishing company and all our money comes from publishing Bibles and, and uh, liberals can't be Christians. We're a Christian company. And I'm like, I'm a Christian. <laughs> and, you know, I think I'm preaching Jesus's values. Absolutely. Like, oh, no, you can't be a liberal and a Christian. Well, we would never put that on the air. So it's not that the radio stations just rejected it. I mean, you know, you, if you go back to the, uh, the late 70s and early 80s, it was, um, oh, what was his name? The guy was broadcasting out of uh, Colorado who got, you know, machine gunned by the skinheads. They made a movie out of it called Talk Radio. Alan Berg. That's right, Alan Berg. And you could hear his show in 27 states. I mean, he was a big deal. And, he, and that, was, that was early talk radio, and he was very, very progressive. Um, but after he was murdered, uh, just a couple of years after he was murdered, Rush Limbaugh came in with big money behind him, you know, rolling it out on 50-some-odd stations. And, and um, you know, I think it's more the ownership. I don't, I, I, you know, and I think that, you know, in 87, Reagan stopped enforcing the uh, Fairness Doctrine. Um, which doesn't require a liberal for every conservative, it, it, but it does require programming, what's called programming in the public interest. And then in 96, Clinton um, blew up the ownership rules. Yeah. And that led to this massive consolidation of the media. These are publicly owned airwaves. At least in theory. People have forgotten this. Yeah. Just to step back a moment, when you said about uh, Romney, did Romney, when he bought the company and, and took over, did he eliminate the liberal programming ideologically or from a financial point of view? Well, they always said that they had trouble selling advertising. I mean, that was always their shtick. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, uh, I know I was here in Portland. I was on one of the Clear Channel stations. I did the morning show for three hours before I did my own nationally syndicated show. And this is when that station was an Air America station. And, uh, you know, we were selling ads just fine. Thank you very much. Um, as, as, and, and right now I'm on some fairly large commercial stations, WCPT in Chicago, KTNF in Minneapolis. And, and you know, uh, there's one in uh, uh, KTRC in Santa Fe. Um, and there are others and, and, you know, they're doing just fine. It's this, the, you know, the, the whole nobody wants to listen to liberals on radio and nobody wants to advertise with liberals. It's, it's just BS. It's a story that they tell to justify, um, you know, stripping uh, the public airwaves of progressive voices. Yeah, it's a false narrative. Uh, I want to go back also to one thing you said. You went to this uh, convention. Ninety-five percent of the talk show people there were uh, uh, right wing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, okay, and and you were left wing. Did they make you sit in the in the left part of the auditorium? <laughs> now, yeah, no, you they... may laugh, but do you know that that's where left wing and right wing come from? I, you know I assumed it had to do with how Parliament was uh, separated. No, you know, it, it was during the French Revolution. Ah, uh. because yeah, because the the uh, 
they were so antagonistic towards one another. And of course, everybody had guns or knives, you know, and they didn't even have to have a law about it. They just, that was just the way it was. So they separated them They in this like horse arena, this armory, uh, so that they could talk out some of their problems. And the, the liberals were on the left and the radicals were on the right. The, uh, what, the, the monarchists. The times of Maximilian Robespierre, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's where it comes from. Wow. <laughs> I love that. I was watching you on RT and hearing ideas and news, and I thought to myself, here I am having to listen to a Russian propaganda arm to get news about my own country. Yeah, that was an interesting experience. Yeah, I was always wondered, how did you reconcile that? I mean, I, I, I would imagine it's for pragmatic reasons, but wasn't that an optics issue? Well, when we started, there were, there were a number of foreign networks broadcasting television in the United States. You had Al Jazeera coming out of the Middle East. That's uh, right. You had RT, you had France 24, uh, you had BBC. And um, RT had started as a network that was uh, to promote Russia, you know, give it a nice image in the United States. And for the first five years, all they ran was documentaries, mostly World War II documentaries. And, uh, you know, they figured out that that wasn't working. And so, you know, they hired some programmers and said, turn this into a real network. We want to compete with Al Jazeera and BBC. And uh, so they did. And the guy that they hired, uh, you know, came to me and said, uh, you know, we'd like to give you a show. You do a really good job. And, and I said, I would only do this with contractual independence. I will not be an employee of the network. I will not have anybody who works for the network having any oversight over what I say or do on the air. I mean, you can take me off the air anytime you want, but uh, no censorship, nothing, period. This is my show. And they agreed to that, you know, which uh, impressed me. And I went and talked with, uh, well, actually, uh, Michael Harrison, the guy who publishes Talkers Magazine. And I said, what do you think? Is this a good idea or not? I'm a little nervous about it being Russia. Mm -hmm. And it was like, no, there's all these networks popping up, all these foreign networks, and they're doing some pretty good journalism. And RT seems to be doing a pretty good job too. And during that period of time, that first couple of years that I was on, it was uh, most of the programming was progressive. And I think that was because they were trying to fill a niche that was underserved. You know, mm -hmm. there wasn't progressive programming out there. They were counter-programming to Fox, I suppose. And they were just trying to grab an audience. Around the time that Trump started coming up, though, in uh, 2015, 20, late 20, 2015, 2016, um, we started seeing a shift in the news side, which had been just straight news up until that point hmm. of the network. And that was the point at which um, I gave notice. I had to give 90 days notice, but I gave notice to the network. And that was a year before my contract was expired, but it was when I had an opportunity to do it, you know. And, uh, and and we bailed out. So, but I, I you know, the, during the time that I was there, uh, they treated me very well, and and uh, um, I think I, I'm quite proud of the programming that we did. Um, I, I, the network has changed quite a bit since then. It was uh, forced to register as a foreign agent in 2017. Yeah, that was that was right around the time I left. I worked at CNN at the, the Washington and the New York bureaus in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. CNN, when Ted Turner was still running it, was this happy place. Yeah. We were there. We were the only ones doing it. And we really were interested in accuracy. There were boundaries, obviously. But we would get intelligence. We had our own pre-internet 
back channel. For example, when Noriega invasion happened, our people were looking in windows and seeing stacks of bodies in warehouses, mm. although it was being reported as a bloodless removal. And we sent fax machines to Yeltsin mm. so he could communicate during the putsch. And CNN ran the wire from Syria to Baghdad, so CNN was the only news outlet that broke Bush's intended blockade of information for the first attack on Baghdad. Wow. This was 91? Yes. That's what made Wolf Blitzer's career, wasn't it? Because he was there on the ground? No, it was Peter Arnett, John Holloman, and Bernie Shaw. And I was friends with uh, Bernie, and, and not so much Bernie, I wrote for him, but I was friends with John Holloman. I asked uh, John a couple of months after it happened, I said, what the hell happened in that room? He said, well, we laid that line down three months before. And this White House was so freaked out that there was a way to report what he was about to do, that uh, George Bush was on the phone with Ed Turner, who was not related to Ted, but was the head of the network. And hmm. the president was on the phone with Ed Turner for, for a half an hour before the invasion, trying to get them out. Bush kept saying, we can't guarantee their safety. And Bernie used to have dinner with Bush at the White House. So CNN called the Baghdad hotel room and said, the president's been on the phone for half an hour saying he's worried for you guys. You want to get out of here? And Arnett said, no, it's what I do. And Holloman was like, no, I'm fine. And Bernie said, uh, I'll go. But it was too late. And then the shock and awe started. And the White House was furious because we were able to cover that. Mm -hmm. I think what started with the Reagan era took a long time to bear fruit. Mm. Do you see a long-term plan that's coming to fruition in this country from a Republican point of view? Oh, yeah. Actually, I just finished writing a book about this. It'll be out in the spring uh, called The Hidden History of Oligarchy in America. Um, in 1951, uh, Russell Kirk wrote a book called The Conservative Mind that started a movement. This was the book that Barry Goldwater, that, that got that turned Barry Goldwater into Barry Goldwater. Uh, it was the book that turned William F. Buckley into the modern William F. Buckley. They all credit Kirk for this, by the way. Um, mm. uh, Everett Dirksen. I mean, just a whole generation of conservatives. My father as well. And in 51, what Kirk said, essentially, he, he didn't say it quite in this language, but it's fairly clear when you read the book, um, that if the First of all, he was decrying the, the socialism of Franklin Roosevelt, you know, social security and things like that, and, and the rise of unionism in the United States, the union movement. And he said, if this middle class that has emerged, now this was the really the first major emergence of a middle class in the United States since the 1770s. He said, if this middle class that is emerging in the United States gets strong enough, gets large enough and wealthy enough, and keep in mind, at that point in time, the wages of people making less than, in today's money, less than $50,000 a year, were rising faster than the wages of people making over a million dollars a year. Um, the rich were not getting rich as fast as working people were getting wealthy. And um, so he said, if, if, that, if that middle class ever gets wealthy enough and strong enough, you are going to see some very specific and predictable results. Uh, young people will lose their connection to the older generation. They will think that they know everything and they will begin to rebel. Women will demand equality in the workplace and uh, will no longer basically submit to their husbands. Uh, minorities will be demanding uh, their share of the wealth that white people have held in this country for 200 years. And the consequence of these, and uh, the consequence of these in aggregate 
will be the destruction of America. This uprising that's going to happen once the middle class hits some, some, and he didn't define it, but hits some critical tipping point of wealth, that rebellion that's going to emerge is going to undo the American Revolution and turn the United States into, into a socialist um, uh, tyranny. And of course, back then, uh, socialism, communism specifically, was legitimately associated with tyranny. We were all watching the Soviet Union. And so, you know, by and large, the media thought he was a crackpot uh, throughout the 1950s. Um, most of your movement conservatives were kind of, you know, they kept their head below, you know, under the, under the mm -hmm. radar, below the radar. 64 was their coming out party with Barry Goldwater. And Goldwater, of course, lost. In 61, the birth control pill was legalized. And uh, so by 65, it was widely available and suddenly women had control of their reproductive uh, systems. And so uh, they were demanding equality in the workplace, you know, as Kirk had predicted. Um, you had the, the assassination of Martin Luther King in 68. African-Americans were demanding equality. Um, in 67, you had the, the anti-war movement uh, which is where most of my efforts were focused when I was a teenager that year, uh, those years, and, uh, you know, getting arrested and, and whatnot in the midst of all that. And uh, so young people were rebelling. And at that moment in the late 60s, early 70s, the, these movement conservatives um, were able to say to all their Republican colleagues, because they were a small minority, see, we told you so. We were right. And if this continues... Um, these hippies and, and mm -hmm. these uh, black people and these uh, crazy women are, you know, their phrase, uh, Limbaugh calls them fem feminazis. These, these, these people are going to turn America into something that looks like the Soviet Union. And th that happened about the same time that in 1976, the Supreme Court in a decision called Buckley versus Vallejo and then two years, year, well, in 76, in the Buckley case, the Supreme Court, for the first time in the history of America, said that if a wealthy person, if a billionaire owns a politician or even a, a couple dozen politicians and they fully own, them, I mean, you know, they're fully responsible for this person's career, that used to be considered corruption. That used to be illegal. In fact, that used to be considered bribery when those politicians did things in the interests of the billionaire who owned them. Mm hmm. Uh, and the Supreme Court in 76 said that's no longer considered corruption or bribery. That's considered free speech under the First Amendment. Money is the same thing as speech. And then two years later, in a decision called uh, uh, First National Bank versus Bilotti, um, the Supreme Court added corporations to that and said, if corporations want to own politicians, that's free speech. So that was 78. So that led to the Reagan Revolution. And the Reagan Revolution was the beginning of the of the takeover, the destruction of America, basically the, the destruction of the New Deal, the end of Keynesian economics, and uh, what we're seeing right now with Trump is the predictable endpoint of the of the Reagan Revolution. He's the perfect symbol of it imploding. Yeah, it's remarkable that we're having a pandemic to further the revealing of all of this. Mm -hmm. I think some people are like myself are hoping for a healthy reboot. Are you at all optimistic that maybe we have some hope here? I, you know, one of two things is going to happen. I, in 1932, uh, Franklin Roosevelt came to power, Adolf Hitler came to power, and the Great Depression was ravaging both countries. And because, and these were both, you know, democratic republics. 
Um, because of the leadership of those two people, those two countries went in very different directions. I think that we're at a very, very similar turning point right now. And I think that leadership is going to be the critical factor uh, next year. And if Donald Trump gets reelected, I think the American experiment is over and we will slide into full-blown, strongman, autocratic kleptocracy and, um, and tyranny. And I think that if Joe Biden is elected and we can reform the system and undo a lot of the neoliberal damage that was done by not just Reagan and the two Bushes, but also by Clinton and to a much smaller extent by Obama, but you know, Clinton did some real, real bad damage to the system. Um, if we can undo that and, and return to the you know, kind of foundational principles of this country, uh, we'll be in good shape. And it's going to be a hell of a fight because you've got not just the oligarchs in the United States who are supporting the right wing and Trump and the Republican Party, but now we know that Trump has reached out to China to help him. Um, Russia is helping him now. We know that from the CIA and the FBI. Um, you know, they've said this out loud. Uh, Chuck Grassley, the Republican chairman of the Intelligence Committee, has said this. You know, on live television, and. Um, and as Seth Abramson has pointed out, and uh, I was just reading another book just a little bit ago, uh, also laying this out, it's not just Russia. Uh, there are oligarchs in uh, Israel, there are oligarchs in Saudi Arabia, and the actual state of Saudi Arabia, uh, the United Arab Emirates. Um, there are a half a dozen other countries uh, that are, have been th throughout Trump's presidency uh, that have been actively helping him and that are actively uh, you know, working to see him reelected. And frankly, that's very, very troubling. And it doesn't get anywhere near the coverage it should get. These are not secrets. Uh, this is not some conspiracy theory. This is all right out there in the open to see. It's just that it very rarely, I mean, once it's reported, everybody goes, yep, okay, that's the story. Now let's talk about something else. Let's talk about his rally. <laughs> All the information that's come out about the Russian influence on Trump through his real estate deals mm -hmm. and all the failures in the 90s that, or in the 80s that resulted in him not being able to get any bank loans. And if you just read a few books, you'll see that there's a fairly clear trail, an obvious uh, connection to uh, Trump and finances in Russia. Yeah. yeah. When you talk about reform, personally, I think unless the Citizens United is repealed, we don't have a chance. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I've been reading uh, Hidden in Plain Sight is the book I've been reading, and I'm sorry I don't have the name of the author. I can't remember her name right on the top of my uh, tongue, but uh, she's been on my program. She's brilliant. And um, it's about this. House of Putin, House of Trump is a good book also about that subject. Yep. While we're on this topic, just to step back a few years earlier, you wrote a couple of books on the Kennedy assassination, the JFK assassination. Mm hmm you wrote about the mafia connections and all, uh, but do you think that that was, in a sense, a coup here in the country and America's course of history forever changed mm. as a result of that uh, takedown of, of Kennedy? I wouldn't call it a coup because it wasn't, it wasn't anybody inside government who killed Kennedy. It was, it was the mob. Um, this was their last gasp. <laughs> when Kennedy was elected in 1960, um, Eisenhower and Nixon, uh, Nixon was the vice president of the United States at that time, uh, were still insisting that there was no such thing as the mafia. J. Edgar Hoover was still insisting there was no such thing as the mafia because he was being blackmailed by uh, Santos Traficante. He, he and Clyde would go down twice a year to Hialeah uh, and uh, Traficante would supply them with young boys and, and money and 
liquor and stuff. And, and he had film of them, you know, video of them, apparently. And um, so Bobby came in as AG. And in 61, we went from 16 prosecutions in 1960, as I recall, might have been 17 or 18, but it was in the teens of what you would call organized crime to over 700 prosecutions of these guys in 1961. And they maintained that five, six, 700 every year. And they were putting people in prison and they were holding hearings and they were just, I mean, they were tearing the, the, the disemboweling the mafia. And uh, so, you know, the mob had to put a stop to that. And um, there was this famous meeting. We, I actually met with uh, uh, Traficante's lawyer uh, who later wrote a book about this. He's, he's passed away now, but, he, you know, he's in our books. But he, he laid this out in his own book. Um, Jimmy Hoffa, Traficante, and Marcello got together. Jimmy Hoffa had been stalking Bobby Kennedy in D.C. With a, with a rifle, wanting to assassinate him because uh, 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 RFK was going to put him back in prison. The, the Sun Valley land deal, he had given Nixon a bribe in uh, '60. Um, and Nixon got the Justice Department to drop the charges against him. Well, JFK comes in and, and Bobby reinstates those charges. And so, you know, Hoff is looking at going to jail for years and years. So he's running around with this rifle and, and Traficati sends a guy up and, and basically snatches him and says, no, no, you don't. And they get together down in Florida. And uh, Hoffa has a suitcase with a million dollars in it. And he opens it up and he says, uh, you know, I'll pay you guys this to to kill Bobby Kennedy, and Traficante, uh, you know, thought about it for a minute and then turns and says, uh, you know, when a dog is is going to bite you, you don't cut off its tail, you cut off its head. And they all understood that meant kill Jack, not Bobby. And that was that was when the decision was made. And you know, a little less than a year later, it was executed. Right after the assassination, Hoffa's comment was, "Bobby's just another lawyer now." Exactly. They killed Jack to stop Bobby. And they did it in a way because Bobby was running this uh, off-the-shelf illegal operation uh, against Castro um, that looked like it was going to succeed. And, uh, and they took a couple of people who had been in the middle of that. Bobby didn't realize that the operation had been infiltrated by the mob. And so they had a couple of people who were involved in that operation, one of them being Lee Oswald. And made it look like, or like they were the ones who were involved in killing Kennedy. And so Bobby immediately thought that he was responsible for his own brother's death, and he continued to believe that for four or five months. Um, you know, we uh, interviewed his closest friend and his lawyer, and, and you look at the pictures of Bobby in the first months, and he's walking around like he's got a ton weight sitting on his on his shoulders. I mean, he was just crushed by this. And when he finally figured out that the mob had killed his brother. Um, he, he, you know, he made that famous speech where he said that he was going to, he was going to get to the bottom of it and implied it was the mafia. And, you know, uh, within a few months he was dead in a mob run hotel. Wow. I think as much as the Kennedy assassination changed America, I think that the more consequential assassination was Bobby. Bobby would have been that generation's FDR. He really would have changed America. Yes. He was the ideologue. He was the one who knew history. Jack was more of just a politician's politician. True. I mean, I mourn the loss of Jack Kennedy, but Jack was just kind of a, a machine conservative Democratic politician.
you know, Kennedy would not have been able to get Medicare and Medicaid passed. He would not have been able to get the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act passed. Lyndon Johnson used that assassination to, to shove those down the throats of the Southern Democrats who opposed him. Yes. His assassination got us to the moon for sure. Yeah. Bobby was the real deal. And the loss of Bobby is, is incalculable. Incalculable. Hmm. Wow. And by the way, Ted mentioned Oswald's Murder by Jack Ruby. And Jack Ruby worked for Marcello. Peter Bergman, at the time that that happened, was working for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And he was, he was assigned to work with the head crime columnist there. And the day that they were transferring Oswald from one pl prison to another, when, uh, the guy, Peter was at his house. And he had left the room with the television in it. And his friend, the columnist, said, Peter, you want to see a murder? Come on, hurry up, hurry up. And he called him in. And sure enough, it happened. Why did he know? Because they had him in a hitman's hold. They had the two policemen totally exposed him. They had his arms. He was totally exposed to be murdered. And bingo, he, he spotted it. And Ruby, you know, he ran a strip joint there and, yeah. and he supplied girls to the police. God, I tell <laughs> you. you. Know, as well as liquor. So, he, you know, the, the cops were in tight with Ruby, not because they, you know, were in tight with the mob, although many of them were, but, you know, specifically Ruby was. Hmm. Wow. Now we're going to take a little break now while we think about our lives. And then we'll be back with more enlightening conversation from the one and only Tom Hartman. Where do rules come from, Mother? Where do we get them? Rules are very, very old, Bobby. They're like stories and poems. Men learned them before they had learned to write. But how did the first rules get made? You remember, Bobby, that we read from the Bible a big poem about how Grid planned the world? Yeah, he planned land and water and light and darkness and grass and animals and power lines. I remember. God planned the world so that we could depend upon it. God made the world so that the sun and the seeds and all the power lines would obey his rules. Did the sun and the seeds and the power lines really obey rules? Yes, dear. That's how farmers and scientists and policemen can know when to plant their crops and when to expect them to blow up. Did God make rules for people too, Mother? God did make rules for people, son, but there's a great difference about the rules for people. For instance, you blow pot. Daddy and I get stinko. The sun and the seeds do not choose. They just obey their rules without knowing that they are obeying their rules. And that's the way you should obey your rules, Bobby, or I'll belt you. You're listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. To hear all the Sexy Boomer Show episodes and get your hands on our Sexy Boomer bumper sticker, visit SexyBoomerShow.com. Look for Sexy Boomer Show on Twitter and Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast right now by clicking the subscribe button in your podcast player. Back to Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, radio and TV host, entrepreneur, progressive political commentator, and prolific author, Tom Hartman. Tom, how do you carry all of this information in that beautiful head of yours. How do you do that? You have such a fine sense of history. I'll just as a quick parallel, we interviewed Penn Jillette of Penn and Teller. He has a mind similar to yours. 
He has read everything. He remembers everything. He has a sense of history. He has, it goes back to the Paleo-Jurassic era and what have you. So can I ask you the same question? Where do you find the time? Because you do, what, how many hours of, of, of media a day? Three to six or something? Three hours a day, five days a week, yeah. Three hours a day, five days a week. Where do you find the time to do your research and to write your book, your books, and to do whatever else you're doing in your life? Well, it's 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 pretty much all that I do, um, which is not a complaint. I, I like this. I you know I'm, I'm uh, I I think you know if you were to ask somebody who was uh, like really into model railroading, yeah. Um, you know, a thousand questions about railroads and the evolution of railroads and where they came from and, you know, and model railroads and what's the difference between HO gauge and yeah. S gauge and O gauge, you know, they would blow your mind with their knowledge because they love the topic. They're into the topic. Um, I am absolutely fascinated by history. My dad wanted to be a history professor when he grew up. He, uh, in his second year of college, my mom got pregnant with me. And so my dad dropped out and went to work in a steel mill. Uh, to, you know, to provide for mom and, mm. and, and me ultimately. And so he never got to be a, a history professor, which was his goal. But mm. uh, he had 20,000 books in our house. Oh. I, I built a room in the basement of my dad's house out of library shelves and literally old library shelves. He got them from, you know, libraries going closing down. And uh, probably 30% of his books were history books. I mean, he was just an absolute screaming, flaming history junkie and infected me with that. And so, you know, I love this. And, and so it's not, you know, it's not work for me. Right. I mean, I, Louise and I get up at five every morning and, and between five and, and nine, we put the show together um, uh, and, and write, uh, you know, a, a small piece that will get pushed out to buzzflash.com. And then uh, from nine to noon, I do the show. And then at noon, I have lunch. And then from one until six, I write because I've got this two book a year contract with BK right now. Mm -hmm. And then at six, Louise and I watch Rachel Maddow's show. It's the only television basically that I watch. And then at seven, we go to bed, you know, and <laughs> rinse and repeat and whatever this, wow. the old thing is. <laughs> rinse, but repeat, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's a, but it's a, a real, uh, you know, I like it. It's comfortable. I'm happy with it. I'm, you know, I've been doing it for a few years and quite a few years. And, yeah. And, you know, I'm not any kind of special person. It's no great Herculean feat. It's just, you know, I'm doing what I love. Focus, dedication, love. Got it. Do you walk out to your uh, deck and do primal screaming? <laughs> <laughs> do you fear for your safety with the amount of hostility and anger there is? I've kind of come to peace with it. Um, Probably dying the way Alan Berg did would be uh, preferable to, you know, a year-long torturous cancer thing, which is what I watched my father go through. So maybe there's not that much of a downside. But, jeez, uh, oh, uh, you know, and I get death threats. I get them with some fair regularity. And, and it's only occasionally that they come with enough data that I know that somebody's actually paying attention to me, you know. Um, you know, saw you at the corner of M and 13th at two o'clock yesterday. The next time I see you there, there will be a, a bullseye on your back. You know, those kinds of emails. Um, oh my God. But, you know, you do, you do the best you can. And uh, I mean, frankly, I don't think that there's a democratic politician in America who's probably not hearing the same kind of stuff that I am. 
the hard right, the, the from the Boogaloo boys on down, you know, have gotten so into their whole violent revolution thing. Um, you know that it's it's weird out there. So, but you know, you can't you can't uh, I, you can't dwell on that. If you do, it paralyzes you, and then that's no value. I mean, that how how, how can you be useful then? Can't stop. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was the same with the Firestone Theater, uh, doing you know anti-Vietnamese war satire at the time, you know. And we've always been anti-establishment, if you will, anti-authoritarian, all of that. And uh, we we would occasionally get pushback. And of course, the main thing was we couldn't get on television. You know, we were boycotted and blacklisted, really censored. But because of our particular time, we could send records out which were private. People could listen to a record in the privacy of their own home and get our ideas and build our, our, our uh, sponsorship, if you will. And then once FM radio happened, suddenly our audience just blew up because we were able to be heard, uh, you know, in, in campuses, on private stations, uh, you know, because they're not going to play a half an hour record on regular radio. But the underground radio... Yeah, I did the all-night progressive rock show on WVIC AM and FM in '69, and or maybe it was '68. And because it was the all-night show, and I was playing album cuts, I played Firesign Theater. I, you know, it was the individual segments. You know, the pieces I, I would use them as bumpers between long album cuts. So we were on the air in Lansing. That helped because we, you know, the Midwest was the place that we toured the most. And Procter and Bergman toured the most. The Midwest was kind of the the center of. A, they accepted a particular kind of surrealistic, anti-authoritarian comedy, unlike other parts of the country. You know, uh, see, I call what's going on now a pandemic. <laughs> You can make wonderfully clear arguments to people about why they're wrong, but ultimately, you know, they, they, they're not going to listen. Right. You know, it is threatening to them. And, you know, you've been very good on your show about not stepping over a line in terms of people saying unsubstantiated things you know, to, to rile other people up and all that. And that's one of the things that I, I uh, that we enjoy about your show. We've been listening to you when since you were on Air America in uh, L.A. every morning. It was, you know, it was uh, a lecture with, with Tom, go to school with Tom, you know, for your first class was Tom. And that's the way that I, I do it now uh, on KPFK, listener-supported yeah. radio. But, you know, it also, I think, requires a certain amount of discipline on your part, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's the uh, counterweight to my ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> Routines are good for hyperactive people. In the Wikipedia piece on you or your bio or something, it says that you were thrown out of high school right. for what? For publishing an underground newspaper. You published an underground newspaper. It was called The Jurist. And uh, it was a little four-page newsletter that uh, my dad printed for us in our living room. He was the, um, the Horatio Alger Society was this book collector's group, and he was the secretary, and he published their newsletter. And so he published this for me. And it was filled of, with you know, left-wing stuff that my father absolutely hated, but he so believed <laughs> in the First Amendment that he printed this newspaper that got me thrown out of high school. Wow. Wow. It's a double-edged sword. <laughs> That's yeah. remarkable. 
Yeah, it really. My my father was an extraordinary man. He really was. They got actually got a court order barring me from going back <laughs> onto school property, which is how I was able to take a GED when I was sixteen, and then go right to Lansing Community College, um, wow. because I could prove that I couldn't I couldn't finish high school. <laughs> you mentioned ADHD. I wanted to bring that up because you, in nineteen ninety two, wrote a book about that subject and brought to national attention this hypothesis about why it's so prevalent in our society. In the late 70s and early 80s, uh, Louise and I ran a community for abused kids in New Hampshire, this one that we started, that we talked about earlier. And I would say the majority, if not all of the kids who came in had one of these labels. Hyper, back then it was called hyperkinesis or hyperactive syndrome. And uh, Ben Feingold had written this book, Why Your Child is Hyperactive. And I flew out to San Francisco and met with him. And we tried the Feingold diet and all this other stuff. And in 1980, I wrote a piece and published it in the Journal of Orthomolecular Psychiatry, suggesting that what these kids had was not an the Feingold diet didn't work for us. It worked for one of our kids. That was it. Um, that what these kids had wasn't a food allergy, that it was the way they were born, and it was not a birth defect, that this was actually a trait, a characteristic that would be very valuable in some societies and in some cultures in different times. And that, you know, we needed to start thinking of it as a difference rather than a disability and, and, and demedicalize it. Um, and then in, um, uh, in the mid-90s, when we were living in Atlanta, our son was diagnosed with ADHD. And the doctor, the, the psychologist who did the testing, because uh, he was failing in elementary school or mid, uh, middle school. And the guy who was doing the testing sat him down in front of Louise and I and said, son, your brain is broken and, you know, mm. and we're going to have to give you some drugs to deal with it because you've got this you know, disease. And uh, you know, it, it just brought it all back to me. You know? <laughs> and you don't you know, yell back at some, you know, yell at somebody, you just paid a hundred bucks an hour. to. Um, so <laughs> I went off and I, I wrote uh, my first book on ADHD, which was just reissued, uh, new and updated. In fact, this year I updated it uh, quite substantially. It's called you know, ADHD, Hunter in a Farmer's World. Yeah. And my hypothesis in short form was that the three characteristics of ADHD, um, uh, distractibility, impulsivity, and a need for high levels of stimulation, were all things that would be highly adaptive in a hunting gathering society but became liabilities when you settled down and had to stay on the farm and, and sit and wait for the wheat to grow. And, um, and you know, uh, in the industrial society is simply a, a reinvention of the agricultural society, you know, put this bolt on this screw over and over and over again all day long, or pick bugs off plants all day long. And, um, and, the, and the, but there, there are places for adults who are hunters um, in our society, the farmers end up as bookkeepers, but the hunters end up in show business. They end up as private detectives, sometimes police officers, sometimes the best, sometimes the worst, frankly. Um, they, they end up uh, well overrepresented in sales. Um, among entrepreneurs, uh, it's probably 90%. <laughs> um, you know, if you want ADHD, look at Elon Musk, uh, Steve Jobs. So, you know, uh, yeah, I wrote that book and it's caught quite an audience. I've written several more since then about the topic. You were a psychotherapist or for a while? or When we ran the community for, for abused kids, I, I jumped through the hoops to get rostered as a psychotherapist with the state of Vermont. Um, the only practice in that regard that I ever had, you know, other than being the executive director of that program, I interacted with the psychologists and psychotherapists that we hired. 
And, and then later when I started writing on ADHD, um, I was, I did consulting work with a number of, uh, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, and psychotherapists. Even earlier, the thing that fascinated me the most was you ran an electrical repair shop. You had a degree in electrical engineering from school. Is that correct? I never got the degree. I dropped out of college. To, oh. Actually, I got kicked out of college. Um, uh, <laughs> More newspaper work? <laughs> getting arrested in an anti-war demonstration that leads to four days of shutting down the campus. And, and I spent 10 days in jail for it. Wow. But I was a ham radio operator when I was 13, and I started out studying electrical engineering. Um, and so when I was 16, we started, I, I moved out of my parents' house when I was 16, moved out to East Lansing. Uh -huh. And um, uh, I started this uh, TV repair shop, TV and stereo repair shop in the back of a head shop, just as a way to make a little extra money. And we built that up to a nice little business over three or four years. We called it the electronics joint, and our logo was a joint with rabbit ears on it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you already uh, were engaged uh, with liberal ideas and, and to change society. What was it that changed you from Goldwater Republican to where you have ended up? What was the inciting incident? It was 1967, and uh, it was the war. It was the, the, the women, women's movement, the civil rights movement. I mean, you know, it was all just boiling in 67. I'd gotten a summer scholarship to go to MSU, and and uh, I was starting to have really bad uh, knockdown, drag out, verbal fights with my dad. I mean, he never laid a hand on me, but we would just yell at each other. Wow! And uh, so I just said, "Screw it!" And I I left home and rented a room across the street from MSU's campus. Uh, lived for a while actually in the, in a kind of a crash pad. It was called the paper office. It was where the local underground paper was published. And, um, I, Keith St. Clair, a guy that Timothy Leary had like ordained 12 guys and sent them out in the world. Mm -hmm. He showed up at the paper office with some really good acid. <laughs> and we got the minister of the Methodist Church uh, involved. And, and we were doing these uh, trainings and how to do acid trips using the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And, and, then, uh, and then I got real involved with MSU SDS. The Student Democratic Society. Yeah. That led to jail. <laughs> wow. And I should add, by the way, within a year, I'd reconciled with my father, and we never again um, uh, allowed it to get that personal. And that, that's part of why I'm so good, I think, at debating conservatives right now, is that my dad and I learned how to do that ourselves and did for the rest of his life. The book that I mentioned earlier, uh, How to Talk to Your Crazy Right-Wing Uncle, that's the philosophy of the book. Yeah. To, to find, you know, how do we find a way to talk to one another and exchange ideas? Not so much like you want to convince somebody, but you want to lay out a case for it that might make some uh, a, a person with an opposing view think about what where they're standing. So I'm glad to hear that. There has to be a way to say, you know, I totally disagree with you. I think you're wrong, and I think you're wrong in a way that hurts our country. But I still love you. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. That's right. I have some friends who are conservatives, people that I got to know, particularly when we lived in D.C., and they would come on my show regularly and debate me. And um, you have to see people as human beings first and foremost. That's right. That's right. The fractured conversation in this country, I think, is exasperated by the media landscape, which is fractured as well. And yet you have 7 million weekly listeners. You have 225,000 YouTube subscribers, 150,000 Facebook followers, 120,000 Twitter followers, and you're a New York Times bestselling author. What is your take on the influence of media on 
political discourse in this country now? Well, media models are dialogue for us. I, I think that's why John Stewart went to uh, to Crossfire and said, "You guys are hurting America," because their discourse had devolved to a caricature of debate. It was no longer debate. I mean, I used to watch uh, Buckley's show with my dad. For that matter, we Joe Pine together. I mean, we would sit there and we'd watch these shows, and and then afterwards we would talk about them, and sometimes we'd end up yelling at each other, <laughs> but. But and and but often most times actually we didn't end up yelling at each other. Those were the rare exceptions. But hmm. we've lost debate in this country. We've lost dialogue in this country. Now it's become people shouting at each other and not listening to each other. And so I I try to recover some of that dialogue in my program, and I think that there's a deep hunger for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Sam uh, Joseph, my collaborator on the book I've been talking about. We also did a play called God Help Us, starring Ed Asner as God, of course, and it's been touring the country. It also deals with the same kind of elements. God is upset because there's such divisiveness in this country. It may tear asunder his entire universe, the fabric of his universe. So he brings a uh, talking head who is a right-wing talking head, a woman, and a left-wing talking head who is a man who are famous. He has them fight like dogs in the show. And then he, he actually finds a solution to this d debate. As God would. As God would, by making them switch their skins so that suddenly she becomes a liberal and he becomes the conservative. And then they begin to get a perspective of, you know, the differences between them and how they might reconcile them. And God's final word is about love and about putting yourself into someone else's shoes, you know. And in other words, some way to get out of the debate I should try that sometime. I should I should ask, you know, one of my conservatives, like, you know, Julio Rivera, who comes on the show regularly to argue with me. He's a big Trump supporter to take my position and I'll take his position and let's try to debate each other. That'd be great. Good idea. I'd like to know how that comes out. That's good. Yeah. You'll hear it if we do it, if I can make it happen. And lastly, you've been a vegetarian since you were a teenager. Yeah. Was it a political reason or a health reason? No, around the time that uh, uh, Keith Sinclair showed up with all that LSD um, was uh, when the Maharishi was also around, and I took mm -hmm. uh, TM initiation, and you know, which is Hinduism, and they were preaching vegetarianism. Um, and in, in addition to that, there was a substantial movement inside the SDS group that I was hanging out with at Michigan State uh, to stop eating meat as a way of protesting violence. Uh, mm -hmm. Gandhi was still, you know, in everybody's memory. And so I stopped eating meat um, in 1968 as a, as a statement. Penn Gillette has become a vegetarian now. And he, like you, seems to have just a bottomless source of energy. Oh, yeah. And focus and a great sense of calm. Yeah, I think it's important. I think it's actually the healthiest way to eat. I mean, you look at the Cleveland Clinic stuff and the movie Forks Over Knives and pretty clear now that eating meat as a condiment, as a flavoring, or if you live in a northern climate, you need to store food having dried meat, you know, makes sense. But um, having it as the core of your diet is just asking for heart disease and cancer. I mean, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Are you vegan or vegetarian? We are vegan, except that a couple times a year, we'll eat some fish. And we just started doing that about eight or nine years ago. And then for a couple of years, we went back to just being rigorous vegans. And then this year, I had Omaha Steak Company advertising on my show, and they had salmon. 
and they off they said, "Hey, we can send you a case of this, and you can talk about it on the air." And I was like, oh, "Okay." <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm not sure I could say that I'm a vegetarian um, because I'm just not, you know, it's it just like I'm not my politics, I'm not my diet. I think maybe four or five times in the last two years, we've eaten fish, and outside of that, it's been entirely vegan. We don't eat cheese just because it it causes heart disease and and snot attacks. When I eat cheese the next day, I can hardly talk on the radio because I get all this mucus. Yeah, that's not a good idea. <laughs> exactly. We should let you go because I know you have to go to a barbecue, right? <laughs> but but I, I can't thank you enough for giving us a chance to see the man behind the curtain. Yes. Okay? As you see all this difficulty and challenge right now, anything you'd like to say to our audience as far as offering some hope you know, the, the great lessons of history are that, that things generally, they may seem very dark for a while, but generally they work out well. <laughs> you know, I mean, the history of the United States is we've had all these crises. We had the crisis of the Civil War. We had the crisis of the Great Depression. We have this crisis right now, each one 80 years apart, by the way. Ah. And uh, it seems like what comes out of these is a good and progressive future. So there's that, number one. And number two, what I would say to any other boomers is, um, be sure to walk a couple miles every day. Louise and I have been absolutely religious about this. Uh, we just go out and we walk two miles every single day. And it is uh, the most, it, it, the, the physical and mental and emotional uh, effect of that, the positive effect of that, I cannot uh, overstate. It's so important. And it's the exercise that our bodies are designed for. You don't have to push yourself. You know, you can go at your own pace, whatever it may be. We walk fast, but, but get out there. You know, I, I, have, I have to say that's one of the upsides of the pandemic here in Los Angeles. Uh, whenever Melinda and I go out for our little walk, we see more and more people walking, more and more people bicycling, you know, and I think people have kind of caught on to that. We got to get out of the house. Let's just go for a walk. And yep. they find it tremendously therapeutic and mentally, you know, mentally healing. Yeah, it is. And actually, there's there's a, 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 a psychological upside to it. I wrote a book about this uh, using, it's called Walking Your Blues Away, about uh, treating PTSD uh, in part by walking. Uh, so it's much more complex uh -huh. than that. But yeah, walking is important stuff. I think the name of your uh, autobiography should be, I wrote a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> so 30 and counting, right? Sure. Right now in your, in your own library. Yeah. Well, congr congratulations. Gosh. Thank you, Tom, so much for your time. And uh, thank you for doing what you do. It's such a, such a great contribution and so needed right now. It's my pleasure, uh, Ted and, and Phil. You know, you know, Phil in particular, I've, you made my teenage years so much better. Oh, good. You informed me in so many ways with Firesign Theater, you know, the work that you were doing back in the 60s. Um, and, and I remember the first time I heard your album, I was tripping. And <laughs> it was quite an experience. I was waiting for the electrician. Yeah. <laughs> thank you guys for having me on your show. And thank you for the great work that you, you have both been doing all these years. It's very kind. And, uh, and I can't tell you how happy I and my darling wife, Melinda, are to have you and Louise's personal friends. Back at you. And we, we will continue our friendship as long as we possibly can. Amen. We love you very much. Thank you. We love you guys, too. I hope to meet you when we can both be in breathing distance again. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, guys.
How about that? Isn't he something? Wow. We're so lucky to have friends like we do, whose lives we can share with you, our listeners. And if you want to hear more, you can go to our website. Oh, hey, it's my secret agent. I have to say goodbye, folks, and take this call. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Hello? Jim, how are you? You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet with special guest Tom Hartman. Rules was written and performed by the Firesign Theater. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm a earnest guy. Join us for the next episode of Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for boomers. Okay. Okay.